Okay, so according to John, Kata Ioannis, right? Um, we're we're continuing now. We're we're up to chapter two, which is awesome, man. We're rolling now. We got through a whole chapter, and as I said before, we're not going to fo- focus on every single line. We simply don't have the time, but uh, we're going to pull out some of the gems. I'm looking particularly at gems that help us to get to know who Jesus is, right? So uh, we're going to jump right into chapter two, verse one, and uh, we're going to read the first paragraph because that all kind of goes together. I'll, I'll give you your word of the day. It's pericope. And what that word means is something that uh, is, it's a set of teaching. So sometimes a pericope could start in chapter seven, verse five, and go all the way to chapter nine, verse 10. It's like, it's a bracket, you could call it, um, that, of something that has a theme all through it. So this first paragraph has a theme, right? And uh, it says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. A woman said, Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from through the servants who had drawn the water, but though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after. The guests have had too much to drink, after they have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Okay, so 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 we read about how how uh, what happened at the wedding. There's a lot there. We'll just unpack We'll unpack a few of the things. Um, so he's in Cana in Galilee, right? Um, in Galilee, remember, this is this is Jesus' home area. Um, this is where he did, you know, there's a this is where he did a lot of his miracles. A lot of his ministry was in Galilee, and particularly in Capernaum. That's where he did most of his miracles, actually. But right now we're in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. You know, one of the funny things is, is Jesus quickly grew his following. So, uh, you know, basically everywhere Jesus went, the disciples went. Another good principle. If you're a disciple, stick with Jesus, right? And so if you invited Jesus to dinner, all his disciples would show up as well. And here Jesus is invited to a wedding. All his disciples show up as well. So his mom, this is a family gathering. Mom's there, the disciples are there, and and it's it's kind of a funny scene because in one sense it's very it's very um oh gosh, just just very uh I'm thinking of the word in Spanish, tierno. It's very it's very affectionate scene because you see a mom and a son interact in very mom and son interaction. Uh, that's very typical of any mom and son. And and yet there's a whole lot there, right? So Jesus' mother says to him, 
that they have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? And, and it's, it's like your classic son's response, you know, dad, now why, why do I have to do this? You know, um, I'm not sure why that's, there's a lot of speculation and I will tell, I will clear this up, but him saying woman is not the way it sounds in English. In English, that would be very disrespectful to call your mom woman. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's not. It's 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 not as disrespectful, but it does mean something that he didn't just say mom. He 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 said woman, um, but again, it's not it's not what you think of as an English where it would be an, a disrespectful insult. Um, but he asks her, and like many, like many 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 questions uh, in the Bible that Jesus asked, there's. He's not really asking to get an answer. He's asking to make a point. Um, most of his questions are rhetorical. If you stop and really consider the question, there's that. that's where you usually find the answer to the whole pericope, right? Okay, so here Jesus is being asked to turn water to wine, right? Not just any water, ceremonial water. Okay, what is ceremonial water for? It's for purification rites. It's you wash your hands a certain way with this water to purify yourself. Well, what's Jesus' blood gonna do? It's gonna be, it's gonna purify us of all our sins, right? And what represents Jesus' blood? Wine represents Jesus' blood. So it's a bit of a foreshadowing of what's to come. Is that why does why does Jesus have to be involved? It's the question. Why does he need to be involved? Because we'd never get to heaven without him. And 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 not to mention that heaven is called many times a banquet. Where are they? They're at a banquet. So in order for the banquet to continue, somebody's got to turn this water into wine. Nobody else can do that but Jesus. In order for us to have the banquet in heaven and to be part of that banquet, somebody has to pay for our sins. Nobody else can do that except Jesus. And how's he going to do that? With his blood. And what are we going to do to remember his blood? We're going to drink wine. Okay, so you see how that all ties in together. And I don't want to make too much of that, but it is, this is considered the first of the signs. Remember I talked about seven signs of who Jesus is? This is the first one. He's going to purify us. He's going to, and it's going to have to be him. And it's going to be his mom who gets him involved while his father's going to get him involved next time. Right? But it's apparent. And he says, my hour is not yet, but not yet come. Now, what hour? What hour are we talking about? Well, there is the hour, the hour of his crucifixion. Right? So, so that's coming. Again, a rhetorical question, or that's not really even a question but a statement that makes us think about, well, what's he mean by that? Oh, he's talking about a day, a day that we just celebrated last Friday, Good Friday, right? My hour's not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And I love it because basically he's kind of saying, no, I'm not doing this. This isn't my time right now. And his mom, his mom just completely ignores that and says, do whatever he says. To the servants, you know, this is like classic Jewish mom here, you know, just, just, just go do it, you know, and, and classic traditional mom, right? Look, you'd be Greek mom, Mexican mom, all kinds of moms, Hungarian mom, whatever. Um, 
and they're always the boss, right? And do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding for 20 or 30 gallons. And, and then Jesus goes right into action. He tells them, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some, you know, and he tells them what to do. So, so the, and of course, the, the, the banquet manager, whoever that is, is just blown away. Wow, this is incredible. We got the best wine for later. Now we'll keep reading. This is what, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so this is put up right at the very beginning to show us that, that, that Jesus is, is giving them signals or signs, if you will, to showing them of what's to come. What I, well, part of what I love about God is God has been teaching us and preparing us for thousands of years. Even though we haven't been around for thousands of years, but we're growing and we grow up and we learn these stories and we, these lessons that all point to God. You know, you think about, okay, all of us grew up, you know, hearing about the Ten Commandments and Moses. And Well, think about it. Think about Moses and the Ten Commandments. This Jewish person leads a group of people out of bondage, and he leads them to God. He gives them how instructions of how to live, right? And they cross a river and go into the promised land. Very similar story to who? To Jesus. This Jewish person who leads us out of bondage, and we cross the desert, he takes us to God, and we get baptized, not, you know, that's the river, and we go to the promised land. And and there's a whole lot more you can go into, but, but you see the general idea. So that pattern is there. You know, Jesus, when he was born, he had to flee to Egypt, right? When Moses was born, he had to flee from Egypt, right? When Jesus was born, he was he was hidden because the king was trying to kill all the babies. When Moses was born, he was hidden because the king was trying to kill all the babies, right? So you see all these parallels between Moses and Jesus. Same thing with Joshua. Joshua is a warrior who leads the people into the promised land. And he gives and teaches them how to have victory and how to be spiritual and how to stay close with God and take on all the warring tribes through faith and obedience. What is Jesus doing? He's teaching us all these things. So all these stories point to Jesus. All these stories get us to Jesus. But they plant things in us, in our brains, so that when we do read and hear the story of Jesus, we're like, aha, I get that. I understand that. So here's that's what the signs were. Same idea. It says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed a few days. So they go down there. And of course, wherever Jesus went, his disciples went. And that's what a disciple does. A disciple follows Jesus. A disciple sticks with Jesus. A disciple goes wherever Jesus goes. That old adage, that old little corny saying, WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? That is the eternal question for a Christian. We're always asking ourselves that. We should be always asking ourselves that. If Jesus worked where I work, how would he handle himself? If Jesus was married to my spouse, 
How would he handle that? If Jesus was the father or mother to my children, how would he handle that? You know, that's always the question. We get in a conflict with a brother or sister. How would Jesus handle this? What would Jesus do? I mean, we probably all all should get that tattooed on our wrist or something because it's just, it's always how we should live. That's what later on Paul describes it as Jesus using the Old Testament that Jesus is our cornerstone. I believe that's in Zechariah, and he's, he pulls it into, into a description of, the, of who we are, that he's the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the stone that the whole building lines up with. And if anything is off kilter or not lined up with that cornerstone, then it is off and it can't be used. It has to be lined up with the cornerstone. So, so this is... Right from the beginning, and again, we're talking about what can we learn from the examples in the gospel. The disciples went everywhere he went. Chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, okay, here's the Passover. You're gonna Remember I told you about how John has three, possibly four Passovers. Uh, when it was all time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money so he made a whip out of cords drove all from the temple courts both sheep and cattle he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables to those who sold doves he said get these out of here stop turning my father's house into a market his disciples remembered that it is written zeal for your house will consume me okay so so here's the scene it's a very radical scene. And this is the one I was telling you about earlier where John has this right up front. We're, we're barely in chapter two. The other gospels have it way towards the end. That's to say that they emphasize Jesus' early ministry much more than John does. John emphasizes Jesus' late ministry. So we're here we are barely in chapter two. We're talking about something that he did really late in his ministry. And, and this is what he's sharing with us. Why? Because he wants us to understand exactly who Jesus is right away. He doesn't have time to give all the backstory that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. He's getting right into the, as Nacho Libre would say, the niti gritty of who is Jesus, what does he do? And, and you know, this is a side of Jesus that most people don't get. Most people aren't in touch with. This, this is an angry Jesus. Most of the Jesus, mostly when we see Jesus, we see him carrying a little lamb, looking all nice and smiling and always happy and always kind of, you know, never, never really upset about anything. Jesus got angry sometimes. There are times where he really got angry. This is one of them. Now, you know, I mean, there's no other way to interpret somebody comes in yelling and flipping tables, right? I mean, that would be anywhere else that happened. That happened in the mall or at school or at work. They, somebody would call the police, right? Right away, the police would be called. They'd say somebody's out of control. He really wasn't out of control. Fact is, he was there the night before. We know that from the other Gospels. That's the beauty of having multiple Gospels. We know that Jesus had actually already been there, already saw this. He thought about this all night long. This was not accidental, but he's clearly angry. That's not to say he wasn't angry. He was mad, and and he made a point. You know, uh, the prophets were known. The prophet, the prophets had said the same thing that the house of God will not be a market, right? And he said, and he quotes, "My house will be a house of prayer." 
So Jesus was, this is another symbol here. This is another time where he's really showing who he is. Who is he? He's the one who straightens out the house of God. He's the one that gets us back on track to practicing true religion, right? True religion. That's Jesus. One of his titles is he's the truth, right? And 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 there's there's really uh, two kinds of truth that are found a lot in the Gospel of John: alethos and alethenu. I believe it's right. I'll I'll, I'll I'll find those words. So I can show them exactly how how it works. But one of them means true, as in right, right and wrong, correct. And the other one means authentic, as in authentic, not false. So he 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 not only tells the truth versus lies. But he also shows you what authentic religion is, right? That and so he he can't stand this false religion, he can't stand this fake stuff, he can't stand this hypocrisy of people making money off God's church. That's unacceptable. You know, there's always there's always times where was where the, you know brothers and sisters will come up and ask me, you know, hey, I started this business, can I pass out my card? Can I? share the business with the church, you know. And I always have to tell them, I'm sorry, we can't. We can't do that because we can't allow the church to become a profit center for anybody's business. We just, we can't do that. We have to keep the church, the church, you know, and not let it become, that's why we can't have marketers and pyramid people, you know, doing pyramid scams at church. And we're primed for that. We're, we listen, we have all these relationships, so lots of times these different groups want to get in there and work the church, right? Can't do that. Can't do that because this is sacred ground. And Jesus was very furious. And that's, a, I mean, some people will not even allow a coffee shop in the lobby uh, for this very reason. I, I think that's a little extreme. I think Jesus would have enjoyed a nice cup of coffee before church. But but if somebody's making a lot of money, then probably shouldn't be doing it. Um, or it, maybe the proceeds could go to a cause to help somebody. To help the poor, these guys were getting rich off ripping off people, and that's the other thing that that you have to. That's good to know is that these people were charging outrageous prices for small animals to be sacrificed. So who would go there? Poor people would go there who can't afford the lamb that we talked about. So they buy a pigeon, they buy they buy a small animal, and and they're getting ripped off. You know, if you've ever gone to another country and you have to exchange your money, they had to exchange money. To use temple coins because you can't use Roman money because God forbids engraven images, right? Uh, for Jews, they can't have anything with a, a likeness of a person or an animal on it. And all the Romans' coins had people or animals on them. So they'd have to trade it to get a temple coin that doesn't have an animal on it. And then they would have to use that to buy their animal. And you know, if you ever go to a casa de cambio or a, a money exchange place, you really got to watch it because they will rip you off if they can. And that's what this was. This was a, a terrible market that was ripping people off, robbing of all people, the poor people. So you see why Jesus was so mad. And and But it's also good to know that Jesus does get mad. I mean, this is the same Jesus who carried the cute little lamb on his shoulder and loved everybody and stood up for people. Same Jesus. But remember what I said. He came full of grace and truth, right? He is both merciful and righteous. He he's he's all of that. So you know, I, I, and you know, people say, well, he was, 
you know, he, he never would hurt him. But he made a whip and whip people. So I, that stings. You ever been hit by a belt or a whip? You know that stings. So, I, I, you know, I don't know. So he was he was upset. They were insulting God's house. Zeal for, and remember what the disciples, they're catching all of this. Oh, yeah. He, the Bible says, zeal for your house will consume me. He would be a zealot, right? He would be a zealot. So we keep reading chapter 2, verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you give us to prove your authority to do all this? Okay, remember, he they, they want a sign. He gives them signs. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. And, of course, he's talking about that he would rise up from the dead because he's going to be the temple now, right? And, of course, they, they don't agree with that. They scoff at it. They think he's crazy. It says, now while he was in Jerusalem at Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his names. So these signs weren't just accidental. They were helping people to build their faith. They knew they were reading the signs. They knew the things were, Jesus was doing things that showed exactly who he was and what he was. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew that he was what was in each person. Um, you know, he, again, this is, we, we see again the whole thing about a testimony or a or a, a, a witness, uh, someone who witnessed what he did and could give a testimony of they were eyewitnesses to what they had said. The interesting thing is, it says that he did not entrust himself to them. Okay, what does that mean? He didn't put his hands in their lives. Yet he loved them all. He loves us. Basically saying, I trust you. I love you, but I don't trust you is basically what he's saying. You know, I think sometimes we make the mistake of confusing trusting God and trusting people. And we say, oh, my! I in my faith, I believe so-and-so is going to become a Christian. That's not up to your faith. That's up to their faith. We can have all the faith in the world. And that doesn't mean somebody's going to turn to God and do what's right. I mean, Jesus had great faith. Nobody had bigger faith than Jesus. And yet after three years of ministry, he only had 120 disciples. 120. It says he didn't trust, entrust himself. He didn't put his life in other people's hands because he knew what was in each person. So I think sometimes we confuse trusting people with trusting God. Trust God. Love people. But you don't entrust yourself to them. You don't trust people you trust God and God working in people and then you can love everybody and and no matter what anybody does they can't take your faith away they can't take your love away when you put your trust in people when you put your faith in people they can destroy it put your faith in God and then you're untouchable because nobody can touch that Love people. I'm not saying walk around, people are evil. Love people the way Jesus did. Serve them. Give to them. Reach out to them. Lay your life down for them. But on your terms with God, not on their terms. How do we keep safe? Do what you do for God. If you serve, if you sacrifice, 
If you give up things, do it for God. Don't do it for people. People will let you down. People will hurt you. And I'm not saying people are the enemy. People are the lambs that we love, that we reach out to. But we also know they're sinners, right? Because I know I'm a sinner. And I know that as much good as I do, sin is always crouching at the door trying to get my heart. And I'm always in that battle to keep my sin down and keep it in check. I don't trust myself without God, and I don't trust you without God. (laughs) I trust God, and that allows me to love you and love me, and we can all love each other. That's an important point because I think some of us get really hurt. We go out there and we serve, we love, and we trust the church, and we forget that the church is a place full of sinners. You shouldn't be surprised that they're going to hurt you sometimes and that they're going to mess up sometimes. Trust in the Lord. Love everybody. Serve everybody. Give to everybody. But really serve God. Give to God. Put your trust in Him. Because why? Well, because we know what's in a man too. We know the evil we're capable of. And, you know, I always believed that there's, well, I learned. (laughs) There's three things I learned about people. One, we're all slime buckets. All of us. Two, None of us want to be. We all want to be good guys. Even in my worst sin, when I was out there sitting up storm and I was caught up in all kinds of evil stuff, drugs and violence and, and, and gangs and all this junk that I shouldn't have been involved in as a teenager. Even then, I wanted to be a Jedi, not a Sith. I wanted to be a good guy in the story. I wanted to help people. Even then, We all have that in us. Why? Because we're made in God's image. And remember that. Remember that. When you meet somebody who looks evil and seems evil, deep down inside, they want to do good. They want to be a good guy. Well, Robert, you just said don't trust them. Don't trust them. Love them. Have a vision for them of what they can be. They be good. What's the third thing? Is that we all need help. We all need help to be what we want to be, to be what God wants us to be right? We all need that. So Jesus, he knew people. He knew what they're capable of. He flipped tables to make a point. He also changed people's names to make a point. He loved them. He served them. He believed in them. Didn't trust them, but we don't have to. We need to trust God, put our faith in him. Okay. We'll stop there. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll continue tomorrow.